0: Hey people, happy new year and welcome to Accidental Gods, the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible and that if we all work together, there is time to create a future that we would all be proud to leave to the generations that come after us. I'm Manda Scott, your guide and fellow traveller on this journey into possibility. And those of you who follow the podcast for any length of time know that I feel our capacity to connect across long distances, to share ideas in real time, is one of the things that has shifted our culture from being complex to super complex or hyper complex or whatever adjective you want to stick in front of it, to let us know that we have a massive increase in the complexity of our communications and thereby our actions. And a key part of this is the evolution of blockchain, particularly in its Ethereum incarnation. And most of us know blockchain, if we know it at all as the core of Bitcoin. But it's progressed far beyond this in the last decade, not only in the core technology, but in the thinking around it. It was, at its inception, a libertarian playground. But there is now a whole infrastructure interconnected mycelial webs of progressive, regenerative communities who are building on and with Ethereum. And I know this can often feel as if it's not part of our world. And it isn't an integral part yet in the way mobile phone technology is, or Zoom, or using a banking app, or a meditation app, or measuring your blood glucose in real time. But it's going to be a part of things in the same way these are quite soon In the same way mobile phones became indispensable, I think some of the experiments in smart contracts and ways of hooking up currency are going to become integral to our lives. And even if I'm wrong, which of course is entirely likely, there are a few certainties running down the line. The old paradigm is crumbling. The superorganism of predatory capitalism has to be dismantled because if we don't dismantle it, it will crash. And dismantling it and replacing it with something better is going to be a whole lot easier than trying to survive when it goes off the edge of the cliff. And on a similar level, we do need to learn to live regeneratively, to connect more deeply with ourselves, with each other in the web of life. And it's this connection that inspires our guest today. Josh Davila is host of one of my must-listen podcasts, Blockchain Socialist, where he holds fascinating, deep, thoughtful conversations that are right at the edge of my understanding, so that I have to listen to them three or four times to get to grips with what's actually been said and how I can begin to think about it. And on top of this, he's also an author. His book is called Blockchain Radicals, How Capitalism Ruined Crypto, and How to Fix It. And this too is essential reading for anyone who's remotely interested in this space. Like Diana Finch in last week's episode, Josh has the capacity to take mind-bendingly complex ideas and render them straightforward, even obvious at times. And in Josh's case, he's rendering social concepts of how our culture is run really sharp critiques of capitalism alongside ideas of how we could do things differently in a way that would be so much better for the overwhelming majority of people. And he's running these in parallel to descriptions of the evolution of blockchain and the nature of Ethereum and what we can do with it and how we can do it. And then on top of that, he is quite often joined on the podcast by Primavera de Filippi, and the two of them are right in the middle of a whole host of conversations about the concept of coordinations, nations—that is coordinated nations, nations coordinated by the technology that we're talking about, which are what I would have called communities of passion and purpose as opposed to communities of place, although I think there is nothing to stop a community of passion and purpose arising in a specific Geographic location. And in the end, when people want to settle down and have kids, I think it's likely that the communities of passion and purpose become communities of place as well. I could be wrong on that. Anyway, we are getting ahead of ourselves. If I am right that 2024 is the year when the tipping points become obvious, even in the mainstream, then we need the ideas that will shift us out of the old paradigm out of business as usual, and into new ways of being. And Josh and Primavera and their co-thinkers are having those ideas. And I really want to share some of them with you so that we can begin to formulate our own coordinations, our own communities of passion and purpose, so that we can begin to build the small islands of coherence in the sea of chaos that Elia Prigogine talks of. Any of you who've had an email from me recently, that is my SIG file for now. So here we go building small islands of coherence. People of the podcast, please welcome Josh Davila of the Blockchain Socialist Podcast, author of Blockchain Radicals. Josh, welcome to the Accidental Girls Podcast. It is a great honor. To have you on. I absolutely love your Blockchain Socialist podcast. It's one of my must listens and I'm hoping it becomes one of the must listens for everyone who listens to Accidental Gods. So how are you and where are you as we speak this Monday morning?
1: Sure. Well, I mean, thanks a lot for for listening. Um, I'm doing great. (laughs) I'm in Spain right now. uh, That's where I'm based usually. Um, And yeah, just having a, a nice morning, productive morning. Uh, where I'm at, so.
0: Super. Thank you. We have so much to cover. Basically, I would like to cover your entire book and the entire concept of coordinations, which is going to be hard to fit into an hour, so we'll do our best to edit. I want to start with a quote from the middle of your book because I think it encapsulates everything that we want to know. So you say, the solution will not be found in making better individual consumer choices or backing one billionaire over another. But through collective action against those who profit from extraction of the Earth's limited resources, we should not waste time shaming others for making the wrong consumer choice when their options are limited, but instead be trying to build systems that satisfy people's basic needs. So building systems that satisfy people's basic needs. That encapsulates everything that I think needs to happen as we attempt to dismantle the superorganism and build something that actually works, hopefully overlapping the two so that there isn't a crash. So really briefly, this is not how most people think, and it's certainly not how most blockchain people think, or it didn't used to be. How did you come to be the person who wrote Blockchain Radicals book, who set up Blockchain Socialist podcast and began to think so far outside the mainstream?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, my story is a little bit strange, <laughs> in that I, you know, I I graduated university and soon after took a job that was not very well paid, and you know was also in this moment uh, in the United States in particular when it was kind of like the beginning of the rise of Bernie Sanders. Okay. Um, and there was, you know, a lot of. I mean, I was already kind of, I guess, more progressive, even I would say for for maybe my my generation and was interested in kind of universal healthcare as something that I think that in the United States to me is like absolutely obscene that we don't have. After growing up in, you know, an era of intense neoliberalism, I felt that this was quite an uh, insane thing to, for us not to have. Mm. And then kind of through that process with the rise of Bernie Sanders kind of became a little bit more radicalized and began to uh, think more about kind of politics and what are the kind of overarching systemic structures that have led to kind of like the the crisis that we we find ourselves in now. And with my not very well-paid job, I realized that I needed to, to make enough money to make ends meet, which I was not. If I, I was doing the math in my head and I was like, I'm not going to make it if I needed to pay for everything and I needed to pay for my student loan debt, which is going to come six months after I graduate. Um, and so I started, uh, you know, doing... Uh, Uber and like doing like this types of gig work stuff to like supplement with my other like with my full time job in order to like make Whoa. ends meet and then it was like not a great experience to to have to do that and it's also just like very I mean I already grew up from a family with not very much money so like I didn't have like I had savings to so, like or like a safety net behind me to kind of like so it's quite an intense period for me of like mm. knowing that like any kind of like big mistake could could lead to to some pretty bad consequences if I'm not careful. Josh. Um and then you know it was sort of like I need to make uh quick money like that's kind of like the, o- the only way for me to like fix my problem fast is to have money fast and so I was kind of interested in maybe I could use my you know my knowledge in, in neuroscience because I graduated in a degree in neuroscience oh did you and thought I could use that to uh, to my advantage in like biotech stocks or something like that. Um, turns out I'm not a very good stock picker or trader at all. And, but in that process, you know, came across cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, of course, I had heard of before as mainly, you know, a thing that uh, I had like friends of friends use in order to like buy drugs over the internet. It wasn't something that I was like particularly interested in, but that's like how it was just presented to me. Right. But it was also the same period was also whenever Ethereum. Was becoming bigger, was becoming uh, more technologically advanced and like becoming an actual thing. And Ethereum was a very interesting kind of alternative cryptocurrency blockchain network to Bitcoin that offered a lot more kinds of interesting features and functions that I thought were really interesting, especially from like a, for me at the time, I was also kind of like radicalizing my politics, reading just like directly primary socialist literature and being like, wow, this is like. I had been looking for a long time, trying to find like answers to to a lot of things, and this kind of to me was like the most interesting that I had read thus far. Okay, and so to me, there's a lot of connections between uh, the this idea of smart contracts and decentralized autonomous organizations that we can talk about maybe a bit later, or I know maybe other people yeah. on your on your podcast have talked about before. Um, this idea in relationship to kind of like the Uh, socialist, it's called a socialist economic planning problem or socialist calculation debate of like, you know, on one side you had liberals and libertarians saying uh, we cannot possibly uh, plan our economy. We need to use markets to do everything because that's the only way we can, there's too much information out there. We can't possibly uh, calculate all of this. And socialists saying, no, we can. And the market is God. And the market is God. Yes, that's an important ideological assumption in that one. Uh, And then the other (laughs) side saying that like, we can calculate things and we can provide for everyone that is something that we can we have we can do that as as a society and so for me kind of like you know the the core assumption about capitalism and and markets under capitalism in particular is that like you by going under this intense competitive game between each other between corporations that you ultimately come up with a uh, a better outcome for everybody by like going after your uh, singular uh, interest, or you like, you're by, by everyone being greedy, everyone gets yeah. the best, is kind of like the assumption, yes. um, which I think has been the assumption that we've been going with for a very long time. Uh, and it has not panned out in the way that nearly like these liberals and libertarians thought it would, I think. Um, but it is still like a pretty strong ideological assumption mm. in a lot of people. But so for me, with, with DAOs and smart contracts, to me, it offered kind of tools for. Going beyond not just like assuming or just like thinking that we can simply take over the states and then create socialism as a type of way, but that we can create autonomous infrastructure that is fairly robust so that we can begin to create like the scaffolding for a kind of socialist politics and economy, whether or not the state is involved so that we can can remove... Remove, like not think about this question of like needing to win over the state or something right. like that, but that we can do it ourselves and begin to create these infrastructures ourselves for our, for us to use.
0: Excellent. So what we have is stepping away from this concept of Marxist revolution and saying the state is essentially redundant now as a concept. That the capacity to connect across distance and time means that national boundaries are broadly irrelevant. And therefore, the governance of those national boundaries, the kind of Hobbesian concept that a nation state is that political entity which maintains and retains a monopoly on physical violence within its borders, that doesn't necessarily have to apply. And that if we could set up networks of connection through communities of purpose and passion, however we define those, then we can create what we need in spite of the governance is that a reasonable pricey of what what you were thinking and where you got to
1: sure i mean i wouldn't say that maybe i wouldn't go so far as to say that the state is redundant but there are like very clear uh problems with the state under like under the current neoliberal model the state is essentially an actor of corporations i would say or that like it is essentially run by corporations in many yeah. ways whether whether that is direct or indirect they often create legislation in the interest of larger corporations and, and for-profit entities. So it is kind of hard to, whenever that is such a prevailing ideological force and the the infrastructure and the system of like governments and nation states themselves don't offer many openings or opportunities for like even incremental change towards a positive, uh, in a positive direction. They wouldn't
0: be there as they did. Yeah, you know, the whole point of I would I would say that that current governance systems, certainly in the West, the the kind of Western-educated, industrial-rich, democratic, weird, global North mm-hmm. governance is a wholly owned subset of of the major corporations, and there aren't very many major corporations. Uh, somebody on one of the other podcasts that I listened to, and I can't remember off the top of my head who it was, but he said that they got a two hundred and twenty-two to one. Payback. So every dollar they spent on lobbying, they reckon they got $222 back. So we have the best democracy money can buy, which is not going to get us through the biophysical crunch of, of whatever bottleneck we're heading to. So, I mean, you're being very kind if you think governance isn't redundant. I think we need to make them redundant quite fast, but maybe I'm heading off into a radical edge that we don't need to get to. What I would like to know from you is if you can really pricey and you go into much more depth in your book what is a DAO and why is it useful? And what are smart contracts and why are they useful? And how can we, who are on the edges of this, begin to understand them so that we can help the move forward to creating this under the radar? What we're all aiming for is, is a regenerative. It's no longer sustainable. We're not just trying to do less harm. We're trying to repair the damage done and provide for people's basic needs. How can... The technology that we have currently and that we are evolving, help us towards that. Over to you.
1: Sure. Maybe I would first preface that I I'm, I try my best to not, uh, like in the book, you'll notice that I try, I'm a fence sitter a bit, like on one okay. side, you have hype men who will say that Blockchain and crypto will solve all of your problems. Your father will finally love you. And then like on the other side, you know, uh, (laughs) there's nothing it can do. It's all a scam, throw it away. And I'm trying to, I'm trying to be like nuanced in between.
0: Okay. And you are very
1: nuanced. (laughs) I try not to oversell.
0: Yes. And I probably (laughs) are on the non-nuanced side. So yes, thank you. Josh is extremely nuanced in the book, (laughs)
1: definitely. I'm the nuanced haver in the conversation, oftentimes. So maybe it's important to understand a couple of other basic fundamental things about this idea of peer-to-peer infrastructure, maybe briefly for people, if that's helpful as to how this it kind of creates.
0: Yes, because even the concept of peer-to-peer is probably new to people.
1: Right. So think about, let's just think about like any kind of social media platform, the vast majority of any platform you act, you use, actually probably, we're using Squadcast right now for, for recording this podcast. Like all of these applications are run by companies that own the server where all of the data is stored about your interactions that you are having with other people on their platform, right? The architecture that this is called, oftentimes called a client server model, right? You have a server in the middle, Twitter, Facebook, insert big tech company here. They own all of the data. There is, of course, some regulation about how they can use it, what they can do with it to some degree. And then all of us have a client or the application on our phone, or the web app on our desktop, and we interact with their server. We make a request, say, I want to post something, I want to tweet, I want to retweet, I want to start a, a video podcast. Like, we are asking permission for them who have ultimate control and they have the the, the property rights essentially over all of that data. Um, and so this is, if you think about it, this is a technical instantiation of a very particular social relationship in which they have the vast majority of the power in in this relate within this like paradigm, and users don't have much of that power. They are given some features and functions by the company that they design, but it's within their paradigm and how they design it.
0: And and they can take it away, as we as we all know. Everyone knows someone who's been completely blocked on Facebook, and they're not given a reason why, and they have no access to anyone to ask if they can be put back. So yes, they have total control and they can then, in a way, frame the reality Mm -hmm. that they are choosing to support.
1: You can be deplatformed. Like, you know, as long if you say something or you are working towards something, you're organizing around something that the company doesn't like, or maybe the government doesn't like, which they just tell the company, hey, can you get rid of them? Then it'll happen because they want to, they need to legally comply with kind of like Mm -hmm. laws and and, and such case and such things. And of course, there's, there is, this is like a, a double-edged sword, right? It can be that like, oh, we're getting rid of like neo-Nazis or, oh, we're getting rid of, you know, you, you know, or socialists, you know, so like. A lot of people can be targeted under this system, and there is like it's a it's it's a hard problem to solve moderation in general. But we do have to admit that it comes with these certain risks. Um, and if you are someone who is like a say you're a, a radical that wants to fight against capitalist institutions, then it is something to consider that uh, any platform that you use is under a capitalist organization that is following the laws of a capitalist country. And so this is the client-server model is the major model in how people. Uh, architect technical systems over the internet. The other option is what's called peer-to-peer, in which data uh, that users are creating is not necessarily owned by a single entity, but is shared or split across many different entities or many different servers or many different nodes, uh, peers, um, in which they are sharing data with one another so that there is some amount of redundancy about that data. And you are able to then have more control over the use of that data and your data. Um, and so, a blockchain uses a peer-to-peer model in order to as, as its like architecture, which is fundamental to being able to solve this problem that a lot of these people were interested in. It was like, how do we make a monetary system without a government or bank needing to intermediate between it? Instead, we can do it with a peer-to-peer system. That's where Bitcoin came about. And then there have been many iterations, many improvements that are very, very different from the like specifications of Bitcoin, mm. which is important to understand because right. oftentimes you'll find critics who will say, oh, well, all cryptos are this and that. But usually they're just describing Bitcoin in particular, in which case a lot of other cryptocurrencies or blockchains don't have those properties. And that's that's just an important like facet to understand, I think. Mm. And so the difference with Bitcoin and Ethereum, let's say that Ethereum was a very big leap in kind of like technological uh, improvement or advancement as far as the functionalities and features that a blockchain is now able to do. With Bitcoin, it was saying that we can track Bitcoin between all of these different users and ensure that there is no double spending of any Bitcoin, that nobody is able to trick the system into thinking that they have more Bitcoin than they actually do. That's essentially how the international monetary uh, payment system works, you know, like, the, but you have trusted entities that kind of track who has spent what and how much money each person has and we there's assumptions of trust in those entities and maybe there's some kind of checks and balances in some way or another and maybe there isn't in some way or another. But so... Blockchains were the uh, is basically the name after Bitcoin was created for describing this technological uh, structure that was able to solve this problem. So Bitcoin is able to send and receive bitcoins between people and is able to track it, and you can have this assumption that nothing has been stolen, no one has double spent, no one is cheating the system. Ethereum added uh, another assumption, saying that if we can create this, you know, quote unquote, monetary system that is able to be trusted using cryptography and using all these fancy math, then we can also program that money with our computers to do things based on certain conditions being met. So you can say, if X happens, then send our magic internet money here, you know? Um, And these are called smart contracts. They're essentially a computer script. It is a computer script that is always running because it's always running on a blockchain and a blockchain is continuously running because of the peer-to-peer system in which these computers are constantly talking to each other. And so a smart contract is essentially uh, an executed piece of code that is uh, automated all the time. It is a piece of script that is constantly looking for conditions to be met and to satisfy them and it may be something that is continuously looking for conditions or maybe just immediately finds conditions for it to to communicate
0: could you give us some real world examples because i can feel already i know what you're talking about so this makes total sense to me but i'm imagining people for whom this is new what might the conditions be mm-hmm. that would then trigger and what would they potentially trigger you could use bread chain if you wanted as an option but you know if you can think of a better one go for it
1: Sure. Yeah. I think maybe one like the the first kind of example that people generally used was the ICO. Okay. The initial coin offering. This was like a big thing in like 2017, where you heard about people raising millions and billions of, of, of dollars within cryptocurrency because they were saying they made smart contracts that said, um, send, you know, send cryptocurrency here, and then we will give you a new token which will be used in our new protocol or application that then that token you can use. And, you know, hypothetically, it will raise in value and you will make money off of it.
0: And I I hate to say this, but to most people in the outside world, that is basically a Ponzi scheme.
1: Sure. But I would argue that, like, I mean, my, my spicier take is that, like, a lot of capitalism is based on Ponzi schemes. <laughs> no, that, that yes, I uh, uh, wouldn't argue that. Yes, the entire stock
0: market is a Ponzi
1: scheme. Not, not, not a problem specific to cryptocurrency, but like... That's true. ...in, in a lot of markets in, in general. I, I use that example just because it's like, it was the first like, very common use of it at, at one point, like people speculating. Um, but you can also imagine smart contracts being used for different types of conditions because computer programming languages are Turing-complete... Which is basically meaning that you can design whatever you can potentially like compute um, that is like humanly possible. You can do very, very different things in that, right? You can say the um, I have a, a, for example, you mentioned Breadchain, which is a project that that I co-founded with a bunch of other people. It's a cooperative, it's a federation of different projects that work together, building what we call post-capitalist kind of blockchain applications. And we have a smart contract where you can send a a stablecoin called DAI to the contract. It is pegged to the US dollar. That DAI gets sent out to generate uh, interest on a DeFi application, decentralized finance. So this is a different type of application that other people are speculating on, but which generates income for the cooperative. And then the cooperative gives you, as a user who gave a stablecoin, a A token called bread, which is like a, basically we think of it as like a digital local currency in which you can use that bread to send and receive to anybody else. You can use it almost like, um, like we were talking earlier about the Bristol pound, like a local currency, um, that is pegged to, uh, the U S dollar essentially, but is also at the same time generating yield for the collective. So you're not donating anything, but you are, uh, allowing for a collective to, to be funded in some way.
0: Right. So I want to dive a little bit more deeply into this, because I think how you organize breadchain and how you organize the collective is a really interesting example of how you can get a disparate group of people with broadly similar aims and help them to make decisions. Because that seems, if we're going to look a little bit down the line at coordinations, so they the actual coordination of a coordination seems to me to be the sticking point. Everybody wants to group up with other people, but when it comes to actually making decisions and you don't want to end up with magnolia walls, how do you decide what colour you are going to paint the walls? But before we do that, I still want to step back a bit and look at basic concepts. I heard somebody say recently that money is commodified grief, which I thought was a really interesting concept. And we can you can unpick that because you're looking doubtful. But it seemed to me, I think money is commodified pain, actually. But you know that's splitting hairs. We have existed for at least 2,000 years, certainly in the UK, since the Romans arrived with a fiat currency that they imposed by violence and on which they exerted interest. Yeah, you, know, you arrive in a, an island where nobody's heard of money before and you go here and give you this bag of silver bits with somebody's head on and I'm going to come back two years later and expect you to give me more of them back or I'll take your children and enslave them. Oh gosh, guess what? You have no more money. Thank you. I have your kids. That is the imposition of a fiat currency by implicit violence and explicit violence. Everything at the moment in the Western world is tied to the US dollar because the US made a lot of very interesting military decisions that ensured that the dollar was the currency that everybody links to. And still links to your bread chain is still linked to a stable coin. And a stable coin is stable because it is linked to the dollar. The assumption is that the dollar continues to remain stable. So this leads me to two questions. And this is first, how long is the dollar going to remain stable? And that's a question that is probably unanswerable, but I think not very long is quite high on the list of answers. And the actual timescale is to be decided. And it won't necessarily be obvious that it's going down until it's gone. And then the question that arises is, how can we create forms? Because what you said is this, that you're creating a digital local currency and you're creating it within a locale that isn't, Bristol Pound was within the city of Bristol. This is creating a currency that is valid across however wide we want to be. It could be someone in Australia, someone in Singapore, someone in the UK, someone in Portugal, could all be a part of the area that this coin funds. How do we make the bridge? Because at the moment, money, commodified pain or not, is the value exchange system that we have. And by its nature, it accelerates upwards. People who have money get more money. People who have very little end up, as you discovered, spinning on a hamster wheel that is designed to stop them thinking about anything other than how can they get more money. How can we structure this digital local currency to have value in the real world to supply people's basic needs? Does that make sense as a question? hmm Okay.
1: Yeah. Over to you. So I would say, to so your first question, <laughs> yeah, I, w- I would agree is very difficult to, to say for sure. I think there is, there's an interesting kind of thing happening where actually the, the use of like cryptocurrency has actually expanded the use of the U.S. dollar, in the form of in the form of euro dollars because of stable coins
0: fucker right uh,
1: is a, at least that's that's what i notice it's like i don't know exact numbers but it seems to me that it like stable coins are a very common uh, asset to hold in countries like nigeria and turkey or other countries where they experience very high inflation they will want right. to stay in the us dollar it's to me it's like if you are uh, a sufferer of imperialism Sometimes the best place to be is inside the imperial core, right? Yeah. So, like because you want yeah. to get away from from being bombed or whatever else. Yeah, is from the them. extraction
0: at the periphery—that is what imperialism does. And yet, I don't know if you listened to Douglas Rushkoff and Team Human.
1: I've had him on before. Yeah. Or
0: his most recent book was called *Survival of the Richest*: the Escape Fantasies of Tech Billionaires. And you know, they dragged him to a, a room in the middle of nowhere in order to ask him how to control their private armies when the dollar ceased to have any value. Mm. So, you know, these guys are expecting the dollar to go down within their lifetimes, and they weren't. You know, these were, yeah. I would imagine, white-haired, mega-rich people that we never hear of because they're so far behind the scenes. So so that's yeah. interesting. Do you think the dollar, as a a stable feature of stable coins, would survive the collapse of the U.S.? as a creator of fiat currency.
1: Yeah, I mean, definitely, if the US collapses, then all of these uh, stablecoin fiat currencies, I think are going to have a really big problem for sure. But I think we're going to have many big problems if that happens, that it's hard to like, that's probably on be top of the list. (laughs) Yeah, that's like lower on my priority (laughs) list, maybe. Um, So I think there is like, yeah, I think I think it that's a very, very tough problem uh, to solve and think about because there is like so many factors. And I mean, there are already, of course, like BRICS and all these other kind of mm-hmm. like um, periphery entities are try are in the process of trying to create their own currency, I think, as a way to fight against dollar hegemony. But then there is like the kind of the purpose with, with breadchain and using stablecoin. Based on the dollar, I mean, one, it is much easier to to program on it. It's much easier to build on top of it. Uh, because of that, it provides a way for people to be able to to be able to like judge how much do I have in relation to like what I need to purchase for my needs with it. Mm-hmm. Because of the stable value, so it's like to me, I, I think of it as a membrane around our locality. Our locality being based on our values, essentially, um, not based on a particular location. And that we are kind of sucking, we're trying our best to suck as much wealth as possible uh, over time from the kind of capitalist standard economy into a post-capitalist, a more um, egalitarian form of economy and like a collective form of relationships with one another uh, to kind of begin to build those alternative infrastructures that we like we'll desperately need going into the future. I think there is like this much bigger problem that is like, it's very difficult for me to like, it, it's hard to prepare for like, what is the app that we need to create for the, you know, destruction of the United States? That's like a, that's a problem that's very difficult to solve, so.
0: Yeah, and it might not be just an happy.
1: So yeah. So like the easier place to start is like, where can we subvert the US dollar okay. to be able to fund and begin building the things that we need in preparation for what is like potentially the next step, which may not include the United States, but at the moment it very much does and it is very much there. Okay. And yeah, so how how can we best do that?
0: How can we do that? And then how okay, so we're heading into the realm of coordinations. Why don't we take a step back? Because I still want to look at decision making and and in the end we're still looking at how can we exchange value i would like to move on to hollow chains and the concepts of value and currencies and and what is it that we're exchanging because it seems to me that endeavoring to pull in dollars essentially works in the current paradigm and i'd be really interested in how that transitions over into never forget what happens with with the dollar but how do we move to a different paradigm mm-hmm. but can you tell us a little bit about what a coordination is, how it differs from a network state and how both of them differ from what we are all used to and what we all exist in at the moment, which is nation states?
1: Sure. So coordination is a little bit of a play on words, a pun for like coordination but we're a little dash between Cordy and Nation. Yeah. But so this is a concept that I've been working with a bunch of people from Blockchain Gov, which is an academic group uh, mostly based in the EU led by Primavera Di Filippi who is one of the first uh, academics to really take on uh, blockchain as like her main subject especially in 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 law. Uh, but this concept comes as a kind of response to the uh, the book and the concept that's been brought forth by Balaji Srinivasan who is like a big American venture capitalist uh, was a GP at Andreessen Horowitz CTO of Coinbase he had makes a lot of money he had made a lot of money in silicon valley but he had put forth this idea of network states and now Balaji to put an understand is like very openly very libertarian uh, and has been a very big proponent of libertarian seasteads, micronations like starting bases on the moon and like these kind of like wild fantasies uh, that uh, kind of like techno utopian libertarianism, and he kind of proposed network states, saying that uh, we need to uh, create. I mean, it's it's a bit it's some it's sometimes a bit difficult to explain the idea because it's also like a little bit absurd and very contradictory in many ways. And I have like a sub series on my podcast that like focuses on that. Um, but essentially, in in my words, I would say think about the startup playbook which is raising venture capital, a whole bunch of money with very high expectations for return uh, and creating a tech startup that is based in Silicon Valley. Take that playbook and apply that to the creation of a country, a nation state or a network state. That's basically his plan in a nutshell. And this has a lot of, this is actually not a very new idea. It's Mm, actually quite old. It's a remix of kind of already existing ideas that existed in the past. There's a lot of kind of like right-wing fascistic influences in this because there's just like this kind of assumption of free market fundamentalism behind a lot of this idea that we should have like it's like a free market of countries to choose from. So to me, it's sort of like it's a free market of dictatorships, right? It's kind of like how Yeah, with it.
0: no regulation. I mean, it's going to be very, very good for very rich white blokes and very bad for everybody else, as far as I can tell. Because I mean it's Ayn Rand taken to its ultimate conclusion. It's seemed to me, and I'm only coming this peripherally, that it's basically it's for people who really don't like paying tax. We're going to create a taxless regulation-free space. Yeah. And We can do whatever the heck we like in there because we all think it it feels a lot like blockchain in its early start, which made a bunch of assumptions, which were everybody is selfish, everybody will work only in their own interests. And we're all straight white blokes who basically want to get super rich. And then the Chinese move in and go, look, we're all going to work together. And look, we own 52% of blockchain and we're (laughs) going to change the rules. What do you think about that, guys? And everybody's heads explodes and the Chinese government comes in and goes, no, actually, China's not going to do this at all. Which I thought was a. Uh, at some point I want to talk to somebody about how that sequence of events happened. But leave that aside. It's a very, it's straight white, read a lot of Ayn Rand and read a lot of science fiction when we were a kid and probably played a lot of Warcraft. And we just want to create a world where we make the rules and we like the rules. And I would actually really like to see one in action. I would like to write the book where there's one in action, because I think it falls apart very, very fast, unless it has one dictator at the top that, you know, right-wing people like hierarchies, and it'll live in the way that bunches of Europe, you know, Tito had a really good, well, I mean, good as in effective, as in he got to say the rules and everybody else followed them until he died. And then the the whole of the Balkan area fell into quite spectacular revenge taking. And I think this will work exactly as long as the guy who has the charisma to set it up lasts. And the moment they're not there, because it will be a bloke, then it all falls apart. I could be wrong. I tend (laughs) not to be as on the fence as you. (laughs) Um, Given that, and that is the, the network state, and up to a point I'm creating a straw man for us both to knock down, how does the coordination differ from this?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so while network state is really focused on, uh, it's like this idea, this libertarian-ish idea that we need to create states in order to fight states. It's kind of like their reasoning is that, mm-hmm. um, you know, he's kind of, you can almost think of him as almost like a realist libertarian or he's not like, you know, com- he's not like a, a complete Anarcho-capitalist type of person, but that we need to create states to defeat states. um, Because he's very anti-state when it comes to paying taxes and regulations and the 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 annoying things that rich people have to deal with. Mm -hmm. Um, So coordination is meant to not to to say that like the the issue is not per se about the state or about the uh, in that like the we're not accepting the assumption of ultimate sovereignty, that you need to have ultimate sovereignty over everything and yourself in order to be able to put forth, you know, change in the world, that you can do that uh, in many different ways that don't involve having to interact with the state per se. You know, with the network state, it kind of makes this assumption that I think a lot of people make, that the world is separated into two parts, the public sector, which is the states, the government, uh, and the private sector, which are corporations, startups, and like depending if you're left or right, depend like will determine if you prefer the one or the mm. other. You either like one or the other because they're both extractive. They're all based on an extractive paradigm. Sure, it's just
0: how you share the bit.
1: <laughs> but so we're saying that there is actually this third sector that is often ignored, which is called uh, it's called many things. Oftentimes, like civil society, autonomous sector. It is essentially a type of social organization. This does not follow the the logic of a corporation in which it needs profit in order to continue its existence in the in in private markets, and neither the state in which it needs to um, develop ways to continue its own existence. It has its own a uh, process of social reproduction. Which is different than both of those. And I think what's difficult about the, this third sector is that often it, it is not like a easily standardized template for how to continue its social reproduction, uh, which therefore, under neoliberalism, which has standardized a lot of things towards the like for-profit model, it has like chipped away at the existence of these of these types of third sector institutions. It could include like you could put like cooperatives, labor unions, the church, community organizing, uh, community gardens, like all these different things that don't exist with the uh, for profit motive in mm. mind. Uh, and it is neither a state, would be like this third sector. And so we're saying that where blockchains and this type of technology for creating autonomous infrastructure can be very interesting and very good is to help supplant and like support this third sector um, that neoliberalism has like really, really done everything it can to, to destroy as much as possible. Um, mm-hmm. For people to organize for themselves, to allow for a type of self-determination and, and self-governance that you can already start doing without needing to take over the state, without needing to create a new state, without needing to like do all these things that Balaji kind of takes as an assumption that needs to happen um, when we think that it absolutely does not need to. Um, while okay. also kind of acknowledging kind of the observations that maybe he's made that are, like a lot of people have made these observations that people can they're,
0: they aren't unique to him
1: yeah they're not unique to him that like we can connect with each other in ways now that that are not limited to our like th- locality right like you yeah. can connect like much much more strongly with someone in a completely different country like that's super far away thanks to telecommunications thanks to the internet like you can talk to each other you can like make connections and then you can meet up and whatever and like you can make this you can form this bond and this relationship that would have been ex- incredibly difficult to do Um, Before the advent of the internet, that is definitely a a fairly recent phenomenon, but it's not like a new observation. And so we're saying that we can build solidarity and you know networks of mutual aid with one another to create our own autonomous infrastructure, in which we can create our own sort of uh, economies or ways of supporting each other that don't involve like extracting resources in the private through the private market or. Uh, needing to enforce some type of authoritarianism via the state, And that we can do this in like a, a more democratic and and civil way. And that this is actually useful and important because neoliberalism has destroyed a lot of these uh, previously existing infrastructures and structures and organizations that would have supported things. And also maybe even the state would have done in the past, but because of the destruction of the welfare states like no longer exist anymore. So like it could be interesting to have Uh, These types of organizations of kinship, of people who come together and feel that they have kinship with one another to begin to have the scaffolding for their own institutions that they can create and that can coordinate for them.
0: So a lot of my thinking comes from books that I wrote ages ago, but particularly the Boudicca series, and particularly looking at indigenous cultures in the, what Francis Weller calls the initiation culture as opposed to the trauma culture. And the trauma culture is predicated on money being the central feature and on this concepts of scarcity, separation and powerlessness, whereas initiation cultures are predicated on concepts of connection, exactly as you said, kinship, sufficiency and agency. And within an initiation culture, which I think is probably coterminous almost with a coordination, there governance was also coterminous with wisdom. The people who had the wisdom had the power, and the people who had the power had the wisdom. And so things like provision of basic needs, food, shelter, healthcare, were integral to the success of the entire culture. And healthcare was a lot less complex. I think this is probably a separate conversation, But in the reductionism of the trauma culture, we also created a very reductive healthcare system that that is frankly very, very good. If you break your leg, you do want someone to put a plate on it. If you get type 2 diabetes, you're probably better off not getting too close to the existing healthcare system because you're going to end up popping a lot of pills that have been pushed by the pharmaceutical industry that may in the end be acting against each other. So we're very good at acute medicine, and we're very, very bad at chronic medicine because of the reductive mindset. If we are going to move into an initiation culture, which I think I think is going to be very close to your coordination, and may, it may be that the way that you guys are thinking about how to structure this, how to make decisions, how to create the membrane that encloses the coordination across space and time, what are the fundamental value systems that you see forming the base of your coordination.
1: Mm. So, like with with the actual concept of coordination, we were like part of it was, I think the word is is normative, like where you you have like a particular goal that you want to reach, or like you have you have certain assumptions about like what is a positive direction to go to. We certainly have that, but we're kind of we're trying not to be too normative by like assuming that every coordination should be this way or have these assumptions. So like one of the kind of like, you know, thought experiments that we were having is like when thinking about coordinations and what is and is not a coordination. So we kind of thought of like controversial examples. One of those being kind of like, you know, is the Ku Klux Klan a coordination? Because although they have the kind of, um, principles and, and, and value system that we would not agree with at all. And is quite racist and, and fascistic. Um, they probably do have a sense of kinship with one another. That someone may be in the Ku Klux Klan because they have a bunch of people that they feel a connection with, although that connection is maybe like problematic for a larger society. Um, they do feel that kinship with other people, and maybe they would have solidarity with other people in the Ku Klux Klan because of that. Um, so we were like kind of using trying to play around these different examples, we also, but we also, kind of the example that we were more interested in looking at, for example, was uh, Rojava and the Kurds and the Kurdish movement uh, there and how they were kind of not uh, subjecting themselves to the borders in which they live in because Kurds are split up amongst four different countries in the Middle East. Uh, and they've created Rojava, which came out of this like critique beforehand where the KKP wanted to create its own Kurdish nation, but then they, or Kurdish state, in which they have decided to, that isn't the direction that they want to pursue. And it's that they want this kind of like non-state solution to like, you know, the Kurdish uh, question, the Kurdish problem. And so we're really interested in, in that and how they go about uh, creating their own governance systems and institutions that you know, have no support from the states in which they are also like actively bombed by Turkey and these other things. So yeah, these are like some of the different angles we were looking at on whether coordination, like where coordination goes. So it's not like, there's definitely a normative assumption that we want people to have more mutualistic kind of relationships with one another and hopefully that are not based on like fascistic ideas on, on race and whatever else. So like my coordination, of course, would not be based on, uh, on something that the Ku Klux Klan would be based on, it probably wouldn't necessarily even be based on something that would that Rojava is based on because I'm not uh, a part of that type of like ethnic group that has these very particular uh, kinds of problems and and history. So would probably be something else. I mean, I would probably choose something that is much more uh, egalitarian, much less based on like actual nationality, but uh, a new sense of nationality, which is kind of where we're going with with coordination,
0: ok. Uh, There's fascinating areas to go, because I think that Rojava are really based on Murray Bookchin, and a lot of his ideas have fed straight into there. And I think they're probably quite compatible, but let's not go there now. I'm looking at the Medium post that you sent me earlier about coordination, which I definitely will put in the show notes. So you have the seven steps. So I'm just going to read them out so that people know what they are. And guys, I am putting a link in the show notes so you can find these on Medium. So step one is build or join a community of kinship. And as we said... The clan might be a community of kinship, but there are lots of others. Identify other related or resonating communities that thereby share your value sets. Encourage these communities to support one another. Create a collective identity by naming it into existence. That feels really important and I want to unpick that one. Pool resources in common and collectively manage them. That is how do we decide. This is very much we're going to create the opposite of a tragedy of the commons. We're going to create an un-tragedy of the commons of this. Organise into a group capable of collective action and increase interdependence by interweaving communities. And this seems to me really exciting and really good. I have a core question, though. So one of the definitions of fascism is that there's an, an in-group that is protected but not constrained and an out-group that is constrained but not protected. And this is endeavouring not to be fascist, and yet is creating networks of community, which is an in-group. What seems to me to be the core difference is that there is no constraint of the out-group. We're not othering the clan, or the network state people, or anybody else where we are a bit. I am. You aren't. But we're also not endeavouring to tell them what they cannot do, except that we are up against biophysical limits, whereby... Let's suppose in the UK the Tory government is endeavoring, they've they've got eight free ports, which they're going to turn into charter cities, I gather, which basically are going to be rule-free. You can do whatever you like within the boundaries of, say, Plymouth. And if the people within the boundaries of Plymouth decide to pollute the entire ocean, we are going to have to constrain them because we are up against limits whereby you cannot keep chucking stuff into the seas and expect them to recover. In your thinking, because you guys seem to have thought about this at more depth and in more detail than anybody else I have found, how do we create a network of networks, a kind of meta network, that is generative and what we would call decent and moving into Living in a less extractive way with the earth, and then in the end living in a genuinely regenerative way where we're healing the earth that isn't creating outgroups that we constrain.
1: Mm. yeah, I mean, I think that like for me like what, a core feature of fascism as well is, of course there are, there are different levels. There are like fascistic groups in which they want fascism to occur and be the dominant kind of governance system. And then there is like fascism as it exists, which, you know, you can look at plenty of different countries for that uh, example and their histories. Um, I'm in Spain and there used to be a fascist dictator.
0: Are you quite near to Hungary where there is currently a dictator who is very close, although not calling himself that,
1: yes. Sure, yeah. So I think with the idea of coordination, there's definitely like not any uh, assumption or need. Like I think what where the Ku Klux Klan kind of maybe may not fit under the coordination definition although i would have to ask my my peers how they think as well because we we don't all necessarily agree but is that they they have this like need to impose like on others their existence or not in some ways or like okay. what spaces they should be in or not whether they should live or not actually with the clan often <laughs> right yeah 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 um so i think uh, that that is like that comes from like a very Selective, perhaps solidarity and a very selective anti-solidarity in in, in that mindset that their that part of their solidarity comes from you know needing to to hate another group or needing to like uh, stop mm-hmm. another group that is not uh, necessarily like hurting them. So I think in order to like my just general feeling is that in order to create. Networks of networks of people who come together, like those, these principles that we need to have need to be founded on solidarity and just like a recognition of the human condition that we have much more in common than we have differences and that we have, we actually do live in a world of abundance. um, Mm. But of course we are reaching a point where that abundance has been taken advantage of by like too few people actually, and for too long that these kinds of uh, feedback loops, in which we have kind of, kind of just been uh, what's the word like assuming to continue to exist forever, and that we've been taking advantage of, may not exist in the future because of for much longer. how we treat our environment, uh, and those things might change. And I think like you can see that like I don't know billionaire bunkers and like. I don't know. There are all these signs of like people Facebook digging up half of Hawaii to build themselves a bunker yeah, down there. Absolutely. This could be a fun world, guys, well, when
0: you're just in your bunker <laughs> and everywhere else is underwater, but hey. Eh?
1: Um But so, that, so I think it's just like this this fundamental need to recognize solidarity with your fellow human being that isn't based on uh race, nationality, like the the state that you come from. Um I think there needs to be this like fundamental recognition that there is going to be uh, there is going to be conflict always, as humans always uh, will have conflict. But we need to find ways to kind of like overcome that conflict in a way that um, doesn't involve a kind of fascism.
0: And so we get to how do we how do we self organize then? If we're going to create coordinations and we're going to define them as networks of kinship and networks of provision, how do we make the decisions? of starting with the contention that there is abundance. I totally agree. The web of life is the web of life and it's survived for a very long time, creating sufficiency. Here in the West, what we consider to be sufficient and what somebody in the global South would be considering sufficient are very different. And up to a point, we may have to constrain what people consider to be sufficient in order for there actually to be sufficient for everybody.
1: Mm.
0: And it seems to me a lot of the conflict comes from that dichotomy of people recognizing probably at quite a limbic level, not necessarily at a complex level, but really far down in their amygdalas, that the lifestyle they have is not sustainable globally. But if they can other enough people and crush them, there might then be enough to sustain their yacht or even just the car and the supermarket full of food. How are you planning to create the consensus building such that the decision making and provision allocation is under consensus?
1: Mm. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that is ultimately like a, a million dollar question, you know, it's like, it, and it's not, it's also not not an easy one to solve. I think we've kind of They've been living under the assumption, under capitalism, that there are people above us who know way more than us, who make all the big bucks because of it, and they will manage kind of how those resources are allocated between us and we don't need to think about it. And so it creates a kind of, we've become almost like subjects who we live maybe under a political democracy in which every four or five years we get to vote or something like that. Yeah, to choose between one lot of neoliberals and the other. Right. But we live under an economic dictatorship. And that is, mm. I think, fundamental to the creation of our mindset. And to the, like, to me, this, this means that we don't really live under democracy, where we have no say in how our resources are allocated. That we don't think of our resources as a commons, as something that is yeah. given by, uh, if you want to say God, if you want to say nature, by whoever... That is given to us as like a right of being like human beings as being alive. We have no say in it uh, unless you have a lot of money, a lot of capital. Like I like to say that like we do live under a planned economy, even under free market fundamentalist like ideology, in that. The people who plan the economy, we just call them billionaires, right? It's Like billionaires, yeah, if they want, they plan to continue to be very rich. Yeah, exactly, and they will yes. do whatever they can to plan to continue <laughs> to yeah. continue being rich. Um, if they want a billion, you know, widgets to be created, they send the capital for the factory to create widgets, um, and they can massively change how like the make of our economies uh, are made up. Yeah, so I, I think that in order to solve this problem of of how we like solve. How, how we allocate resources, I think we have to, I mean, for me, I feel like the assumption is always going to be like one, not 100% of people are always going to agree on everything. So we do have to make some concessions about like, yes, something may not be happening for you as an individual, maybe not agreeing, but maybe there can be spaces where there is an allowance for expression of that disagreement or expression of like, perhaps wanting to take different Direction for certain things, but there has to be consensus and consent by Hmm. you know the majority or by 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 many people.
0: There's a difference between consensus and consent. Can you unpick that for us a little bit?
1: Sure. Consensus is more about everybody agreeing on a particular direction, and then, as far as I understand, I believe consent is as long as there isn't someone who thinks that something should not happen.
0: Yeah. It's, it's an absence of disagreement, which isn't and, yeah. the same as agreement. You don't have to agree with something, but you have to not have a good reason to disagree with it. And sure. if you disagree, you have to explain why you're disagreeing and you have to put forward a better solution, which tends to crush the disagreement somewhat in my experience. But you know, it, it a good enough solution, I think, is consent is, yes, this is good enough for us at least to try it. And yeah. then we'll come back and review and see, is it working? And if it's not, what's our next step? So it, it doesn't require as much total agreement. I still don't quite get how you decide the color of the walls by consent. It's always my thing. It's, you know Nobody wants magnolia walls, but that's what you end up with because no one can decide on anything else or no one can agree on anything else. And I've never yet found out how the consent system, I think you just repaint the walls every time you come back to them. But know <laughs> yeah, that's a minor thing compared to how do we distribute, how do we grow and distribute food? How do we create and distribute power as in electrical power?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: How do we create and allocate a sufficient health system, because the web of life provides, but the web of life also has redundancy, which is to say that a a wild dog has 10 puppies of which only one will survive. Mm. And humanity has got to the point where if somebody has 10 kids, they expect all 10 of them to survive. And that's not how we evolved. But we kind of got to the point of zero redundancy in terms of our assumptions of how we will live. So as we're heading towards the end, I understand that consent and consensus are different and that what we're probably aiming for as a a viable working option is consent rather than always requiring consensus. So as we're closing, is there a coordination in existence? And if there is, how does it work? And if there isn't, how could we imagine one into existence? And how would it work? Over to you.
1: Sure. So the kind of a consensus actually that we came to when doing our coordination workshops and, and thinking about the concept was that there doesn't exist yet any coordination in the way that we have fully described it. In the same way that actually there is no such thing as any network state that Balaji has described, even though he will, they will often kind of stretch the definitions that they use for what a network state is to, to fit their narrative. To and pretend that there is one. And to get investor money. So, right. yeah. um, but uh, the kind of organizations that we look at for inspiration include Rojava, like I mentioned previously, where we look at how they have uh, come together in in spite of difference. Because although they are the Kurdish nation, all, they are quite diverse in maybe they may speak Kurdish, they may not speak Kurdish, they may speak Arabic, they may be Turkish, they may be Christians, they may be Muslims. Um, there is a lot of uh, diversity even within Kurdish people in which they still find kinship with one another. Um, so we found that like a part of the the inspiration that um, where the network state is really, really focused on like singular identities for creating a, a a network state, like not agreeing in the belief or believing that the FDA should exist as a major example that that Bellagio gives is the the reason to form a network state, which is basically just a, a description of a charter city, like you mentioned, or like a special economic zone. Yeah. Um, what we're more interested in is like how can we bring people together from diverse perspectives, from diverse places, who come together for like a shared, um, not necessarily like just a singular shared interest, but that they are able to develop kinship with one another to uh, proceed after like greater collective goals that they want to achieve. And so this would, in our mind, inherently require democratic uh, institutions for governance, whereas the network state is really something that is impartial to that question. And largely, actually, if you read between the lines, assumes like a very authoritarian uh, kind of governance structure, although people who like network states will say, no, no, no. Hmm. Um, But if you read it, it kind of assumes it. Um, whereas we are being more explicit that a coordination requires democratic input, okay, and so the idea is that you would need to cr- find and create more levels of collectivity, which means that you interweave, meaning you create real connections. We we also use the the phrase like you share blood with other collectives that have similar goals as you, to combine forces for greater types of collective action, and that you have a kind of like shared identity at, at some point with various different collectives in order to go about larger forms of collective action that you want to go forward, that uh, has real sharing of real resources, and in which it is actually very difficult to break apart, right? That the, the kind of assumptions in a network state is that it should be very easy for you to leave your community. But we're saying that if you can very easily leave your community, then it wasn't a community.
0: It's not a community.
1: Yeah. So a community is inherently something that you decide to go into, in which you are perhaps, in some people's minds, maybe giving up some amounts of freedom in an individual sense, but so that you can achieve greater forms of freedom in a collective sense. Uh, And to have this shared autonomy requires some amount of uh, what 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 can i say like a removal of ego i guess maybe yeah
0: yeah and i don't know if you've read graeber and wengrow's the dawn of everything yeah and so one of their three fundamental principles of how the extraordinary kind of it was almost uh communist libertarianism that seemed to apply, particularly in North America, within the tribal structures there, where nobody tells me what to do, and yet I am a functioning part of a really egalitarian tribal structure, was the capacity to leave. That if somebody started to become authoritarian, you could go. You could just pick up and leave, and they would be left with their three followers talking to nobody, and you've all gone off somewhere else. And it seems to me that if we... (laughs) are I'm assuming that I'm creating one of these somehow. The capacity to leave if it starts to oppress you would have to be inbuilt. What really struck me, what Graeber and Wenger were saying, was that there was a kind of meta structure where, as I understand their comment, that throughout the Americas, north and south, there were three meta tribes. I think elk, bear, mm-hmm. and coyote, I think. And if you were elk clan yeah. and you left your tribe... And you went to the next people, even if they were technically at war with your tribe. The elk people had a duty to take you in. Yeah. So there was you were leaving a small collection of people, but there was a, a meta collection that would take care of you. Yeah. So as that, it, this not leaving, I I can completely see if you're in a community that functions, but there has to be some capacity of if somebody is trying to take over that community and you're no longer fits with your your values that you have a means of of walking away. Otherwise we're in dodgy country again. Is that something that's being considered?
1: Yeah, of course. I think one of the, um, like what's fundamental to, to a coordination is solidarity versus network states doesn't really have a real sense of solidarity. It's really like, you know, imagine the same scenario, but you're in a world of network states. Where do you go? What will determine like where you go, yeah. Uh, because there's this free market fundamentalist kind of idealism behind the entire thing. You are only going to be as safe as the amount of capital you're able to buffer yourself from danger.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's it. Yes. Which is already in large part how the world exists today. You know, like there is some amount of arguments that people can say about the creation of capitalism, giving people certain freedoms to be able to exit uh, certain societies or yeah. not. But that's because it comes at the cost of like taking part in the capitalist system and having capital to buffer yourself, which is a very individualistic. Yeah. You're as free as the amount of money you've got. Yes. Right. It's an individualistic pursuit. Yes. If you're Musk, you're free
0: to go to Mars. Most of us are not free to leave the job that we're in unless we've right. got another one to go to. Right. Yes. Yeah. Okay, yeah. but whereas in in our in the coordination, I I've been taking into this. I, I think coordination is a brilliant idea, but in the coordinations, it because it's shared values. Presumably, if there's if there's conflict in a in a locale, even if it's a digital locale, there are others with shared values that you can ally with and and still be held, because yeah, I, we, we're assuming the provision of not just values but food, water shelter, healthcare and connectivity as our basic services, I guess. Yeah. Okay, I've probably held on to you long enough, Josh. Is there anything big or small that you think would be useful to say? I particularly would like to find a way to let people who just don't get the blockchain Ethereum thing, is there a way to connect with what's happening in what feels to me like one of the most exciting areas of generative thought in the whole progressive movement?
1: Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I would say that one of the easiest things you can do, of course, is to check out my website, theblockchainsocialist.com, where I have uh, been producing content for around four years now, uh, both in written form and in podcasts and in videos. So kind of whichever you prefer is there. I'm hoping to do a lot more video going into the future. But um, that is a place to start. I have a section on the website for Blockchain 101, If you want to start there, Um, of course, I think where I've written kind of like my best work is in my book, uh, Blockchain Radicals, How Capitalism Ruined Crypto and How to Fix It.
0: I, I will link to that in the show notes. I don't think the video of this is going out, but I'll hold it up in case people want it. There we go. Which is also, we have to say, coming out in audiobook on the 6th of February. So if you want to listen to it, I'll put a link when we have a link for that. But honestly, I think people should read it. And also you have a Patreon account. If people want to support Josh, I will put a link to that in the show notes as well. Yeah, And you have a Discord and a Reddit. Uh, oh. I love cruising your Discord. I haven't really got <laughs> connected deeply because book, but for those who are into that, Discord and Reddit also. Other than that, the general coordination, I will put the link to the Medium post. Is this a thing that, is there any other resource for that that people could connect with?
1: Uh, with coordinations, I would say the best spot would be the Gov Discord server. So there, there, you can have discussion there. I mean, you can also, if you join the crypto leftists uh, Discord server as well, we have conversations about that as well. So yeah, I think those those two are okay. probably your your best places for for discussions about that. And yeah, I think I think kind of for me, for a, or for a lot of people, like what's nice about these communities I've been able to to curate and create is that it's where you can um, ask questions about these types of maybe slightly complex technical concepts and trying to apply them, you know, within your life or or actually just like learn practical things on like how to use it in a space where you don't have the same types of ideological assumptions that a lot of other spaces in crypto have. So you can kind of avoid, yeah. avoid that mess if that's really not your thing. Um, and it was the thing that I struggled with the most when I was first coming in is that the only, like even if I wanted to learn the basics of blockchain, oftentimes, not all the time, Oftentimes, it would be like this libertarian assumption that I had to mm. kind of like get over with. I had, to, I had to get over and then like rethink. I'm like, I know that's wrong, and there's something else there. So I've created this. I had to create this space to uh, to allow those conversations to, to push. So
0: other people don't have to go through what you went. Through. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they can, yeah, they can start from a different point. Yeah, which is perfect and brilliant. Right. In that case, I think that's a wrap, Josh. Thank you so much for giving us your time and your thoughts and for all the work that you're doing, because this does feel really exciting. And if we're going to go forward, I think this has to be one of the planks of our future regenerative place that we would be proud to leave to the generations that follow us. So thank you very much. And we'll hope to talk to you again sometime. Yeah,
1: thank you so much for having me.
0: And there we go. That's it for another week. Huge thanks to Josh. For being at the cutting edge of the change that we need. For being one of the people who lifted the whole concept of blockchain out of the hands of the libertarians and shared it with those of us who want to see a more equitable, connected, harmonious world. He's done a lot of the heavy lifting and the early thinking. And now he's doing the real sharp, cutting edge thinking. So I've put as many links as I can in the show notes please head over to his podcast totally worth a listen read his book if you're remotely interested about any of this area even if you think you're not Josh's book is one of those where I turn over the corners I'm sorry I do disfigure books and literally 90% of the pages have their corners turned over I've got yellow highlighter all over it I started writing myself notes in red pen and they Early pages and there just isn't room. So get a copy and read it. And it is coming out in audio if that's your preferred way of listening. And then let's explore coordinations. I don't know what they look like. I don't know what they feel like. I don't fully understand how we coordinate in ways that give everybody the freedom to be themselves and yet allow us to create sufficient connection that we can get things done. But we're going to need to learn this, and we're going to need to learn it in real time, quite soon. Feeding ourselves, generating power, finding ways of having shelter and clothes, and basically surviving while connecting, I think, are going to become rather more challenging than they have been. And the more groundwork that we can lay, while we can still lay it, the happier we will all be later on. So let's see where this goes. And that apart... We will be back next week with another conversation. Enormous thanks in the meantime to Caro C for the music at the head and foot, for Alan Lulls of Airtight Studios for the production, to Anne Thomas for the transcripts, and to Faith Tillery for coping with all of my tech disasters, smoothing them all over, making them all work. Thank you. And on top of that, as ever, enormous thanks to you for listening, for caring, for getting it. being there. And if you know of anybody else who wants to get to grips with what's happening at the leading edge of technological change, then please do send them this link. And that's it for now. See you next week. Thank you. And goodbye.